So what's alive for you in your practice, in the theme of embodiment, in what's happening in your daily life? I feel like we live in a very busy society, but something in me also feels like it's gotten even more hurried and hectic over the past few years. Maybe that's just my personal interpretation, but I feel like everybody seems more busy and maybe a little less connected than they used to. And um, For me, it doesn't feel as easy to kind of find my ground for a simple like 30 or 45 minute practice. It used to. And, um, some of that is personal, but some of that is also, it feels bigger than me, also. So I'm curious. Other people have that experience? Well, just before I start speaking, does can anybody else relate to that? I'm just thinking to myself in this years or more extended period of practice, like, oh, this is what I've been avoiding. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right. This is what I do want to do. Just in, you know, sharing that experience of, you know, I can usually get myself to a cushion for 20 minutes, knowing sort of that it's kind of a maintenance program, mm-hmm. as opposed to a larger I think I can definitely relate to what you're just saying. It's just, it can be challenging to uh, maintain a practice and work have relationships and friends and it's just um, I, I do uh, when I see practice I, I'm thinking about meditating because I feel like that's when I can deeply embody in practice and when I'm off the vision I feel like I'm, I'm practicing well I keep being mindful as, I, as much as I can be but um, it, it definitely when I'm at home and I'm alone and that rare time observed the people that I'm in contact with is that there's a larger number of people who are experiencing kind of chaos. There's always chaos, but the kind of chaos coefficient is higher these days. And, um, you know, in terms of a larger reason why that's happening, you know, all kinds of people have different views and opinions about it. But what I can say is, is that it's my observation that there's more of that happening right now. And so from my own personal experience, the way I can relate to that is is, is that, you know, we are human beings with our own personal psychological structures and patterns and history. And we're in something that's a collective field that is moving in in a process of evolution. And these two things are happening simultaneously. And as a human being, I've got issues and history and places that are um, tender or places that are strong. 
but that's my own personal story or karmic configuration that I bring into the present moment. But the bigger picture, you know, when I relax into a bigger picture, there's a sense of, a, of pure awareness which is holding the whole thing in awareness. That it isn't me doing it. I'm not coming here to do meditation. I'm shifting out of the sphere of identifying with me being the one doing it and surrendering into a flow that is awareness unfolding into itself. Energy that's unfolding into itself. There isn't, a, a, there isn't an agent doing it. There is the intention bringing the conditions forward that allows and, and doesn't resist a process that's unfolding. And the juxtaposition between the two is also some place where there's some tension, the dynamic tension between the individual personal experience and a larger field of relaxing into an into a, you know, all-pervasive awareness, which is in everything and everywhere, is not something that anybody needs to create, and it's not something that you need to get rid of anything in order to have. It's there. But we don't have immediate access to it. And so this dynamic tension also creates an agitation, and some people experience it as more energy in their bodies. Some people experience it as more restlessness, a a lack of willingness to be present and to meet what's there. Some people experience it as a kind of sense of being dislocated with the situation around. So there's many ways in which people are experiencing this, but I have a feeling, or it's my sense, that this is something that is indeed bigger than the individual person. It's a kind of um, a way of of, uh, talking about things in a larger sphere. We have this idea that, you know, we have to do it. And because the it that we have to do often includes meeting things which are uncomfortable, then the response to that is we don't want to do it, you know. But when we relax and recognize that it's not we that is the doing it's uh, it's a it's a showing up for an unfolding then there's a whole other thing that happens that makes it for myself makes it more I have more capacity to show up for what's going on you know and so the shifting of the frame of reference of what's actually happening here gives me the interest and the courage and the capacity to do the work that's needed And the work that's needed is to show up for what's happening and to learn to see and be present with the resistance and contraction around not wanting things to be the way they are and wanting things to be different and softening in our own mind-body reactions to our own reactivity. That's the work. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to make the river flow. We don't have to make the sun rise. We don't have to make the moon come out and the moon shift. That's not our work. But our work is to be responsive to what is arising for us and to learn how to feel our way into our own reactive mechanisms and to be present for that, show up for that, and learn to find another way. Now, one of the ways that we are good at reacting is by spacing out. Get me out of here. I don't want to know. You know. So it's like, you know, out of, out, of, out of my body, out of the present moment, anything else is worthwhile other than what's, what's happening right now. 
you know, any other piece of garbage is more important or interesting than the immediacy of what's actually arising for me. And so we become escape artists, you know, where we can we can exit stage left in an instant and not realize what's happened. And so we're learning to catch ourselves without any kind of judgment about what's happening and come back into our physical body and be present with what's happening and see that not wanting to show up as part of what we need to show up for then ends up being a way in which our mind and body, our life ends up taking on, you know, it goes from being a two-dimensional experience to a three-dimensional experience where we start realizing the depth to which we don't want to be here and all of the ways that that expresses itself. Now, for many of us, there are reasons why we've got stuff like that as our primary patterning. It's not there for no reason. And so alongside the kind of courage needs to be an enormous capacity to bring compassion into the present moment. Because this stuff comes because of suffering. It doesn't come for no reason. And so as we develop our own capacity to extend what we can meet, we have to do that with compassion, not with any sense of judgment or force or that it's a good idea or that we're if we don't. But that when we meet what's present, we don't suffer as much. And that patterns of suffering, which have been the things that have been driving us, are not the things that we give energy to anymore. They fall away. And what's left is a life that's full and free. But the kind of unraveling of our patterning and unraveling of our nervous system, you know, which has gotten wound up with patterns of fear and contraction and self-view and identification takes whatever it takes. For most of us, it's time and skill and gentleness and courage and friends and tears and laughter. It takes whatever it takes. But, you know, we've moved into a postmodern world. And so, you know, we're way past a traditional society that was, you know, had a very strong sense of loyalty to clan and to culture. And we're into a, you know, a post-technological revolution where people are communicating on the computer rather than in person. And it's not surprising that one of the consequences is that people feel a lack of connection. It's not the same when you are relating to somebody on Facebook as when you're speaking to them in person. And yet, a lot of people are relating to each other on Facebook and not in person. Or texting. Or on the cell phone. At least on the cell phone, you can hear a voice. You know? But the normal human signals of warmth and connection and responsiveness are not coming through in the same way that they can in an in in interactive thing. So, and the kind of change that this society has gone through is just exponential compared to, you know, normal changes that people are usually able to adapt to. So if we feel unsettled or restless or a little bit out of sorts, I would agree, it's not entirely personal. You know, we're in something that is shifting quickly and it's a lot to keep up with it. I have a question. Yes, Michelle. Um, 
experience, so I'm speaking from my own story. You know, I was um, single-minded, focused on Theravada practice and Vipassana practice for 20 years solidly. And even though I grew up in kind of like the spiritual hotbed of, you know, I grew up in California where every practice, everything, every, every single everything was around me. I was like, you know, this is all that I was doing was Vipassana practice. That was it. I wasn't interested in anything else. And then after 20 years and realizing there were certain things that the meditation wasn't actually attending, addressing to, and I began to see that it wasn't because I wasn't making enough effort. It wasn't because I wasn't trying hard enough. It was because there was something about the, 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 what, was, what I was trying to deal with with the meditation itself was not the best remedy for it. So I had to make a connection to the fact that the meditation that I was doing was not addressing some of the patterns that I had. It required acknowledging that there was suffering that was not shifting. And then it began to be a sense of, well, what may help me? So rather than think that anything that I don't know will be an answer, I began to like work with my intuition of get a sense of, well, what is it that I haven't tried yet that may open up doors that will lead in the right direction? Okay. And then for me, there were many intuitive things that came together that began to guide me and lead me in directions that opened up doors about different ways of practicing. So one of the things that opened up first was the sense of devotion and surrendering into Kuan Yin energy. So it's lovely that Kuan Yin comes today because she was one of the first kind of really aha things, that it's not about me doing it, but surrendering into a field that's much bigger than me that I can really trust is there to support. And so this way of surrender into practice was not something that I grew up with as a meditator. And even though there are elements of that that are in, in, in a monastic culture, it's not something that I had much resonance with. And so it was only when I was introduced to Kuan Yin and Kuan Yin practices that I got a feeling for the power of that and how important it was. And then from Kuan Yin practices, I was in Australia and I was doing things with the, with the land. So the land I began to see was, was a way of mirroring my mind. And I began to have an intuitive way of relating to the land, that the land could show me stuff about myself that I didn't know. And then I started doing intensive dream work where I was working with dreams to, to work with other elements of my psyche that I didn't have access to. And then after I did this intensive dream work in Australia, I was doing a body-based psychotherapy 
well, it was looking at the body as the way of holding the unconscious. And it was enormously revealing the kinds of things that happened with all of that. But for me, first what was needed was the recognition that the meditation was not sufficient. And now, many years after that, what I can say as a view or as a framework is is that you cannot use transpersonal remedies to resolve pre-personal pain. Some of the Buddhist insights takes us into an understanding and an insight that is beyond the construct of a person. It's transpersonal. Okay? It's not limited to the individual personality structure. Okay? It's beyond that. All right? Most people come to spiritual practice through the gateway of suffering. Not all. It's not a universal door, but it's a very wide gateway. And a lot of that, speaking for myself, comes from pre-personal woundedness. Stuff that happened before I was able to verbalize things. Okay? So as a 17-year-old when I was first interested in the Dhamma, I had this feeling that the Dhamma was going to be the thing that was going to sort everything out. And that was my absolute hope and view and belief. And that's what I heard from many people, from many Dhamma teachers. Is that that's what it does. If you meditate correctly then you can expect to find an end to suffering. But the end of suffering that it's addressing is not the suffering that I was coming with. And so what I needed to learn how to do was to respond to the suffering that was arising with the right response. So the suffering that was arising for me did not need observation. It needed interaction. I didn't need to become equanimous with it. I needed to respond to it in a very compassionate and wise and loving way. And that was moving out of the framework of Vipassana meditation strictly and using other modalities. And so there's nothing wrong with meditation. There's nothing wrong with monastic life. But it needs to be complemented with other things that it doesn't do as well with the stuff that does do well in order so that this whole thing can kind of ease out. And each person in terms of what they relate to and what they resonate with and what those things look like will be different. Now, it doesn't mean that we go from one kind of practice to another kind of practice to another kind of practice as itself an avoidance strategy to do the deep work of what (laughs) feels like because anybody who sits longer than 10 minutes knows that it's uncomfortable. So it's not to avoid the discomfort It's to recognize that at a certain point, there are ways to address what's happening that may be more effective. I'm I'm sure uh, people in this circle have shared my experience in that. When you begin the healing process, and meditation is such an incredible welcome home, and then you realize, wow, there's so many benefits, and then you you do have the tendency to like start to reach out and help yourself and try all sorts of things, right? It's like talking to their best uh, friends or whoever, but there's still that, yeah, it's like still a part of me, you know, that I 
hasn't been shaken, you know, just so it hasn't loosened up, really. And um, what I'm hearing from you is, and, I, and, I, and I'm learning this, I'm learning this because it's, there's that desire is so strong and it puts pressure on me, I, you know, I put pressure on myself to, why can't I be here and sit right here, you know, even if I'm stretching, right? And then to accept that, where I'm at, and being compassionate, um, I mean, I, I, I feel like that that has, I think, maybe come close to what you mean by surrendering. So there's many different faces of a very similar kind of thing, and one of them we do to ourselves all the time. You know, if only. If only I was more enlightened or more wise or more compassionate, if only I had more energy, if only I had more attainments, if only I could see things more clearly, if only. And the list goes on and 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 on. And And underneath that is a fundamental sense that what I am is not okay. And we miss that. There's a fundamental sense of a lack of acceptance of who I am and what is happening right now. And rather than meet that and have that, bring that into our practice, we think that's the truth. And we use that as a basis for our action. And it it has to be questioned that there's something fundamentally wrong with me and that there's something fundamentally wrong with the present moment. And so I think, you know, one of the challenges of being a human being is, is, is that, you know, there is a sense of, of the perfection which is present. And in the perfection, there's always room for more improvement. And these two exist simultaneously. They're not um, canceling each other out. They exist simultaneously. And it seems in one part of our logical mind that they cannot you cannot have perfection and have improvement at the same time. But they absolutely coexist. I've been a, basically an urban practitioner. I've been a practitioner practicing settings like this in the city and stuff like that. I've been on retreat in more remote, wooded environments and, and have known the uh, benefit of that. But still, I've always been an urban practitioner and used to street noise and all that kind of thing. One thing I noticed is that that there are periods where it's it's way more difficult, and it doesn't just feel like a just let the street noise be street noise kind of a thing. It feels like a, it triggers more of the kind of survival kind of you know I need quiet kind of thing, um, and the trauma kind of pieces. So I was wondering your thoughts on that. If in those moments we really just listen to ourselves, and if it doesn't feel beneficial to be sitting with the noise and the urban environment, to wait and sit when we can be in nature. Or often for me, if I want to practice, but I am in a more chaotic environment, then I don't sit. I do movement because that helps. That helps me from getting too rigid in my sitting, trying to kind of be still in the chaos. I think it's really skillful, Rachel. And I think it's really important. You know, we have this idea about meditation being sitting. It's not. It's about being responsive to what's happening in the present moment. And sometimes we don't need to sit. What we need to do is to move or to stand. And I totally relate to the kind of the time of, well, wait until you can create the space in nature or to go by a tree. You've got fabulous parks here. 
you know, and there are fabulous trees, and you're like, you know, you're in the middle of the city, but you're in the middle of a park, and you can't see any any cars, and all you hear is birds. So, you know, it's not, you don't have to go for it far in order to be, and you've got water, you know, incredible water all over the place, water. So this is a city that's got lots of nature, and so it might be that what's needed is to create spaces where you can have time in places like that, which is where you are nourishing yourself. Now, I also totally get the noise thing. You know, I, I was I was always very sensitive to noise, and I never really understood it. And somebody was working on me and doing some kind of cranial sacral something, and and a huge fear piece released from my body, and the noise wasn't bothering me afterwards. And I never put the connection together. Now, it didn't stick, you know. But what I do know is, is, is that, you know, when we've got traumas in our system, it's going to affect our sensitivities on all kinds of levels, and that needs to be attended to rather than um, pushed through. Um, so for years, I travel with earplugs. And so if I'm in an urban environment and the street noises or the car noises or whatever kind of airport noises are too much, I just dampen it down slightly so that my nervous system is not fighting something that I can't control. And then where I live, you know, I'm, I'm just 10 minutes away from the Garden of the Gods. from my, And so in 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I can get to a place that's completely without any city noises. And I go there all of the time. I go there every single day because there's an unraveling that happens when I'm there that does not happen when I'm working with the noise. Unless the concentration gets deep enough and then it's not a problem. But it usually takes for me time to drop into that kind of depth where the noise is not affecting me. And until I get to that depth, then it supports me to be in places where there isn't those kind of noises. So this is being responsive in one's meditation. You know, actually creating environments that are conducive and, and, and creating practice routines that are really conducive rather than an idea about what one has to be doing in order to fit an image about what a good meditator or a committed meditator or dedicated practitioner is. It's being responsive. And it's listening to your body. It's letting your body lead you. It's letting your body tell you, no, no, not this right now. I need to move. No, no, I don't need to be right here. I need to be in a quiet place. You know, or I need to be by water. And so go. You know, go. As you're talking, I'm hearing, like, such this, like, voice of being, I don't know if being a good meditator, but, like, being awake or at ease or... Uh, being okay with myself and my life means that I have to be able to tolerate whatever's going on. And so, if whatever's going, but if whatever's going on is like triggering me, there's but there's this voice that's like, no, you must sit still. And that's I get very interpersonal with my childhood. But I don't know if, if there's a larger, either cultural or societal, or even within our own tradition, kind of a voice of like or trapping. Of like, no, you, you being a good meditator means you can sit still through anything. 
that definitely is a voice that is one of the voices that comes through the teachings that an accomplished meditator is able to sit through anything okay and yet you know one of the things that we learned as a community of nuns is, is that as we got more confident we got more able to say no I'm not sitting through this I'm going to go take my space and I'm going into the forest now and I'm not going to be with people and so our confidence was to fly in the face of what we were hearing and to learn to trust ourselves and our own needs more and respond from that rather than the, the idea that we were not being good meditators and the conformity that was required to show up at all the times that we had to show up for, you know. And so to learn to listen to oneself and to respond from that takes in a lot of confidence. And it's it's interesting to me because, you know, I, I have a deep love for the Dharma punks. And yet the Dharma punks have their own ethos about what's a good meditator. So the Dharma punks, who's a group that who is in some levels very, very identified with being against the stream, has their own outfit, both mentally and view-wise, that they have to fit in in order to feel like they're okay. And for me... This is the nature of ignorance. It's not related to the group. This is how ignorance functions. I feel like there's a need too for like permission. And I don't know who I want that permission to come from. If it's like inner permission or like a teacher's permission or like the group's permission or what, but this permission to like go live your practice. Right. And I think, you know, that's one of the things about having community and having elders in the community that is really valuable is, is, is that when there are older sisters or other sisters around who you trust, you can talk to, who can confirm what your sensitivities are and who can encourage you in that, then you feel like you've got permission to do what you feel you need to do. But when you're standing in the desert, you know, and you're trying to figure all this stuff out by yourself, and there isn't somebody else that you can talk to about it, it feels like it feels very alone, you know. So one of the values of having community of people who are also seasoned practitioners is is that you have different people with different experiences who can support, you know. I was so rigid when I started monastic life because what happens for people, what happened for me is is that, you know, monastic life is a little bit extraterrestrial. It's like, you know, it's like on another planet. And so there's there are very few references that I had culturally that made any sense in the monastic culture. And so the rules that we used to shape ourselves then became the thing that I identified with is who I was. And so if anybody wasn't keeping those rules really carefully, it was incredibly threatening to my sense of the group identity and what we were all doing together, okay? Because I was identified with the container rather than the essence. And, you know, a monastic culture, especially one coming from Asia, has an awful lot of reference points that have no cultural kind of, you can't, it doesn't translate very easily. It's, 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 a lot of it is very, um, it's particular. So it's taken me a long time to begin to remember, well, actually, I didn't get in this because I was interested in creating an identity with the form. I was interested in creating an affinity with what is liberating. And then to begin to see, well, what is really important in all of this that really needs to be held and protected and and cared for? And what's the stuff that can be more flexible depending on context? 
Now, what's fascinating to me, and it's been part of the kind of big, huge story that I've come from, is the intensity of identification that happens for people when they're in a group and what that does, both positively and negatively. And so, ultimately, the freedom that we experience has got to be because we come into an inner authority with what we are living and experiencing. And we're not defining ourselves by the... Our, it's not the identification which is liberating. It's the seeing the identification as the freedom from that which is liberating. Now, we all have forms. You know, we have bodies. We have relationships. We have forms. And so whether you pick up a monastic form or pick up a married form or pick up an employer form or pick up any kind of form, it's a form. And how we use it depends on our wisdom and our maturity and the kind of skills we have as well as, you know, the kind of stuff that we're picking up from the society around us. But it also depends on how much we buy into the rewards that that form or system is offering us. For most of us, we're in a lay culture. So you have to have money and cell phone and computers and work and people are driving three, four hours a day and computer all the time, getting all this news and stress and, you know, it's in your body. So we try to meditate 10 or 15 minutes a day and get rid of, you know, that lifestyle, the stress of that lifestyle. We're not actually doing anything about the lifestyle. And that's a good... There's a certain point where bad food and too much driving and the computer and everything, it's it's not like you have to give those up and become a mom. if you're doing 23 and a half hours a day stuff that stresses you and you're not eating and sleeping and all the rest, and then you're trying to unwind it mentally by sitting still for 20 minutes a day. So somehow, I think that we have to let it affect our lifestyle, too. Everybody's got to decide you know, how much they're going to give up or what they're going to change to get healthy. So it's got to get in there somewhere. Otherwise, we're, like you started at 1 o'clock, we started, you know, it's not just ideas. You can't like, have certain ideas about life and our existence and then keep doing what we're doing. Absolutely correct. Yeah. We're, we're buying into the rules of this industrial culture like you were buying into the monastic rules. Mm-hmm. And anything that, you know, a day without cell phones, I start freaking out. I think uh, people I talk to that meditate, that's like the normal thing. People are so busy and stressed. They don't have time to meditate, they don't know how, they never get any good results from it, and they just keep stressing. Right. I think they think their way out of it, and it's it's sad because the stress accumulates people get sick. So my suggestion is is that we pause here and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.